partner with the Innovation Institute at the University of Pittsburgh, you're listening to Bending Steel. Hey everybody, how are you? It's a beautiful week here in the city of Pittsburgh uh, for many reasons, but I would say above all else, it's because of our guest this week. His name is Don Morrison. He's an entrepreneur in residence here at the Innovation Institute. He's worked for the Sundance Catalog Company, Bear Creek Corporation. He's a mentor for Alpha Lab. He played in a band when he was younger, but uh, what you might know him for most of all is that he was the CMO, Chief Merchandising Officer for American Eagle. He's the one who took them from one store to 165 stores. So we got to sit down with him, talk to him all about his journey from being a military brat to moving to Omaha and playing with his band to starting at Union Jack and moving on to American Eagle and making it from nothing to something. Everything you'd want to talk to this guy about, we, uh, we had the pleasure of doing so. So without further ado, we present to you our conversation with Don Morrison. I was born in St. Louis. My dad was in the military, and I counted eight schools before high school. Eight? Eight. So I grew up uh, all over, and uh, was very fortunate I got to go to high school in one place in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And... um, but I was born in St. Louis, but I consider Pittsburgh to be home. <laughs> I transplanted triple boomeranger to Pittsburgh. So when people ask you if you're in where you're an alma mater of in terms of middle schools and, and such, um, it was just it, it's a blur. It's a blur. It's a blur. So you're a, is a military brat? Is that military the term? brat? Yep. It's a really charming term. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, what does that do for you mentally growing up to be switching and constantly well, be thrown into new those at first I thought it was a cosmic curse to make me unhappy because you meet friends and then you're ripped apart and you right. have to start all over again but uh, looking back I think it's uh, it was really uh, established a uh, pattern of a, being adaptive because you always have to make new friends and uh, today I can go cross-country in fact my wife and I went on a on a uh, six-week cross-country trip uh, and we stayed in hotels three nights. Every other night we were that staying with like so much fun. friends or, uh, or family. So Where'd you go? We went from uh, Oregon to the East Coast and then, and then back. And on the way back we drove uh, to, uh, I think we we're in Palm Desert and my wife had never seen Southern California. So we decided to go down to the Hotel del Coronado for breakfast. And <laughs> we literally drove up uh, Pacific Coast Highway all the way back up to Oregon. So beautiful. It was uh, it was amazing. Do you uh, do you take a, a van in that situation? No, do you we take an we, RV. We just took our uh, good old Subaru. The Subaru. But growing up military brat, one of the other things besides having to reboot my friendships every you know literally every year, was my dad was uh, uh, aircraft commander on a B fifty two. So wow. virtually every place I lived uh, growing up. We were ground zero had we ever gone to a, a hot war with right. the Soviet Union. Uh, m- my home uh, would have been one of the first places destroyed. So that does something to your psyche when you just realize you're constantly living at ground zero. I'm sure. So you finally got to stay at the same school in high school? 
got to stay at the same school in high school. My parents moved away, and uh, my brother and I ended up um, living in a friend's basement for the last couple months of school, which is not uncommon in the military. And this is in St. Louis? No, this is in Michigan, Michigan okay, the Upper Michigan. Peninsula of Michigan. Upper Peninsula. So that, oh, interesting. Okay, so what were you like in high school? Were you Did you find yourself having a more... Uh, I don't know, like stable, obviously social life, but like personality-wise, well, did you feel like you could grow more? I um, I was very fortunate to have gone to a small high school because I'm marginally talented, and if you're marginally talented like me, and you go to a small school, you could do just about anything you want. <laughs> if you, could, you want to play football, you just show up. Right. Uh, you want to be in the senior play, you just show up. You'll so probably yeah. be the lead. Uh <laughs> Uh, so it was really. You weren't homeschooled, were you? I was not okay, homeschooled. Okay, all right. Yeah. No, no. School of one always gets School the lead in the play. Yep. But it was uh, it was great because I met some great friends, and we still get together uh, decades after the fact. And uh, uh, it w- it was really uh, great because uh, people could do pretty much anything they wanted to do, unlike kids who go to really large schools. Yeah. So going into your senior year, you're looking at colleges, I assume. Right. What is, do you know what you want to do at that point, or are you kind of just looking Well, my, my original life plan was to be a ski bum, and then that, uh, <laughs> that was quickly... From uh, a military brat to trans- a ski bum. Yes, yeah. that was quickly translated into I wanted to become a rock star, and I had a uh, rock and roll band in my misspent youth. In fact, uh, when I graduated from high school... My younger brother was our drummer, and uh, he and I moved into an apartment. He was 15, I was 17, and our bass player was 18. He was the only one old enough to sign the lease. And we moved into an apartment in Marquette, just uh, off base where my dad was stationed. And uh, at the end of that summer, my, my mom called up and said, we don't care what you do, but Steve is coming to Omaha to finish high school. <laughs> She didn't want him living the bohemian lifestyle no. at uh, 15. So That's tough at 15. So our band had a dilemma. We had to either get a new drummer or move the band to Omaha. So we picked up and moved to Omaha. We got a lucky break. And wow. uh, a second booking agent picked us up, and we were off to the races. Were you writing music or co- you, you we were, were just doing covering primarily stuff, cover. We oh. did a couple originals, but mostly cover. Who you cover? Uh, um, a lot of Sing uh, me something. a lot Let's of R and B, a lot of uh, Sam and Dave, Otis Redding. Um, in fact, Jet Magazine uh, named our band one of the hot up and coming R and B bands in the Midwest, which was not bad for a bunch of funky white guys. No, so, I, covering Otis Redding. Yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, do you still play? We just had a reunion uh, last week, and I got my. Uh, my band back, the proverbial getting the band back together. Yeah. We had a ball. Oh, that's great. My dad was in a, a band when he was in high school. Uh, it was called Simon and the Wise Guys. And they it was in the uh, the Southeast. And they would play bar mitzvahs and weddings. And they had their weekly radio program. And my dad has been saying, like, one of these days, he'd really like to get the band back together. <laughs> it's like one of the coolest things I feel like you can say as a former it, band it, member. It was so much fun. We, we really had a ball. Yeah. So you go to college. Go to college. My senior year of college, um, I got married my senior year. It was uh, in 1969, height of the Vietnam War. And uh, in those days, um, if you didn't have a a student deferment, uh, and I had to miss uh, every other semester to work my way through college, so I didn't have a student deferment, uh, you were eligible for the draft. And uh, a lot of my friends got drafted and, you know, shipped to Vietnam. So I decided to get married, 
Uh, I had an apartment. Uh, Wait, you just got married? Did you know? Did you, you met someone ahead of time? She was actually my high school uh, sweetheart who followed me down to Omaha. And then then when my dad retired, moved back to St. Louis, which is our ancestral hometown. Right. My uh, fiance uh, followed me there and we got married. So this, okay, she wasn't just a groupie. She was someone you had no, been dating no, yeah, ahead had, of time. We had been dated, dating uh, for, for a few years. So um, I was working 40 hours um, a week in a lumberyard as an apprentice carpenter, taking 16 class hours at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And on Friday and Saturday nights, I played in my band. And on Sundays, I ran tours for my uncle, who had a tour and travel business. Jeez. And my dad's uh, flight operations uh, for his company in St. Louis was very close to the lumberyard where I worked. And he had kind of a dry sense of humor. And he called me up one day and said, where are you going after after school today, and I said, I'm going to work at the lumberyard. I worked from 3 in the afternoon until 11 o'clock at night. Jeez. And uh, he said, I don't think so. It was on fire when I flew over this morning, oh. and the lumberyard had burned to the ground. <laughs> so um, You weren't able to check Twitter and see that? No, I was not able to check Twitter. So I was in a panic. I needed a job yeah. that I could fit around my, uh, my school hours, and... Uh, Ended up applying for a business. I had no idea what kind of business it was. It just said help wanted. And I interviewed uh, with about 100 other kids, and they hired 12 of us. And uh, we met in this big room, and there were two guys uh, sitting at this folding table that looked like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones and Men in Black with dark sport coats, right, you know, white shirts, skinny memory. ties. Right. Yeah. And uh, I was you know, trying to think of what kind of interview question I'd be asked, you know, and I was like, hope there's not math. And I was like, what's the square root of 32 and all this stuff. And my big interview question was, if we hired you, would you wear flares, flare pants? <laughs> and I was biting my uh, inside of my cheek so I wouldn't laugh. I didn't want to be disrespectful. And I leaned across the table and said, I have them on. <laughs> so I was hired for a young men's clothing chain. And fast forward, I became the... Um, the apprentice to the uh, the owner. Uh, Can I ask you something sure. right there? So you're joining this company. Uh, how many employees did it have? Uh, they hired 12 for the first store. 12 for that the first store. The first 12. In terms of merchandising and marketing, you know, what year is this? This is... 1970. In the 70s. Like, how are you... How were they marketing and merchandising the store? Did you agree with it? Did you feel like it was done well? Well, I knew nothing about um, how they did the operations of a clothing business. I liked clothing because I, I have three brothers and in the military, I was second in line. So my older brother would get the new shirt. Right. I would get it the second year. My next youngest brother would get it the next year and so on. So I think I was in junior high and a girl came up to me who was, I think, just trying to be nice. And she said, oh, that's a great shirt. Your brother has one just like it. Of course, <laughs> I was mortified because it was my brother's shirt. Absolutely. So, from that point forward, I said, "That's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna babysit. I'm gonna shovel snow. I'm gonna mow lawns. Do whatever I need Just to, to have do your to, own to buy my own clothes." So I bought my own clothes from high school on. So when I started working for this uh, company, it was called Union Clothing Company. It was a cradle grave men's store, and they correctly deduced that no self-respecting teenager wanted to buy clothes in the same store where their father, you know, also bought their clothes. <laughs> so their idea was to take their young men's department out of their traditional cradle-to-grave store and create a specialty chain, which they called Union Jack. So I was one of the first 12 employees 
for Union Jack, and we basically used the inventory control methods that the parent company had been using for decades, and it was all manual. Um, it wasn't as fine-tuned as I needed it to be, so I expanded on the classification system, right. and I created a manual inventory control system, which worked really well with one store. When we opened the second store, it worked, but not quite as well, because it was all based on manual counts. Right. And um, I'd taken a class in my senior year of college just on a lark. It was called Quantitative Methods in Historical Analysis, and I would never have signed up for anything that dreadful, except the professor who taught it was just an amazing intellect, Dr. Putnam. And uh, it really got into quantitative analytics and big data before big data was big data. Yeah. And it really was transformative for me. So I was observing the 80-20 rule of retail not really understanding what it was. And so the owner of the store um, would call... Um, what is the 80-20 rule of retail? 80-20 mm -hmm. rule of retail is that in, in most cases, you, you do 80% of your business on 20% of your inventory mm -hmm. because of inefficiencies in uh, buying and guessing what your customers are going to want. So mm -hmm. the lack of inventory control, the owner would call the store uh, 10 times a day. He drove us nuts, and whoever was by the phone would give the report. What's selling? What do you need? And I happened to be by the phone one day, and uh, uh, the owner's name was Dick Baser. And I said, Dick, you know, I gave him the report. And then I said, Dick, I don't know anything about retail, but why is all our inventory over here and all the sales seem to be over here? Right. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. He said, really? And I said, I think so. And he said, can you do me a favor? I said, sure. Can you do some counts for me? So I did some physical counts, validated right. my observations, and uh, uh, that's how I became his uh, his apprentice. And then... After two stores and my manual system kind of started breaking down, we opened our third store, and I held up my hand. I said, I can't do this anymore. You know, we have to automate. And, yeah. of course, they went into full-blown panic because that meant computers. But we developed an automated inventory control system. And uh, my autobiography, by the way, it's going to be called If I Was Smart. Uh, <laughs> if I was smart, I would have... Uh, copyrighted and sold my inventory control software to all my competitors. Oh, there but, we go. Yeah. But uh, I didn't sell it, but it helped me grow Union Jack from one to many stores. And in the St. Louis market, all the developers would post the mall rankings of categories like Young Men's Specialty, who's number one, two, three in terms of total sales and sales right. per square foot. And the company I worked for, Union Jack, dominated the mall rankings. So I started getting job offers from various companies, national competitors, as I started coming into St. Louis. Were you thinking about leaving at that point, or were you not? Not really. I was 20-something and, you know, young and stupid, uh, and I had my hands in, I was doing all the buying for all the different uh, merchandise classifications. I was doing all the visual merchandising, determining what went in the windows, uh, what went in all of our ads. I was doing ad copy. Were you just doing that based uh, off of what you thought would be best? Like, Well, I... I had an eye for uh, clothing, um, you know, being one of four brothers and having to buy my own clothes. And uh, I became a pretty good selector of, of guessing what was, you know, what was trending. Uh, being also in school at that time, I was on campus, so I got to do a lot of observation. So some of it was based on, you know, physical observations. So it was based on, on gut. And fortunately, I had, I was a pretty good guesser. Yeah. And because um, that's something I want to ask you about as sure. we begin to talk about American Eagle too, is sure. you know, 
obviously market research now. You look at all the data you can work with, <laughs> sure. it's, it's overwhelming. Sure. I mean, you could be playing sports, you could be in merchandising and anything. Sure. Um, but ultimately, how effective is the gut today um, compared to 1970? Well, you don't want to discount the gut, but you don't want to discount data either. And so it's really a, a combination of finding right balance between, uh, between data and gut. There's lots of data out there, and you can interpret data you know, however you want to interpret right. it. So you really have to find the right uh, blend. In my case, I needed data because it was you know, total vacuum. I needed to know what was selling and what, what was not selling. So, yeah. so in the mid-'70s, um, one of my competitors that was based here in Pittsburgh um, invited me to come in for an interview, and by that time my parents had coincidentally moved to Pittsburgh, and this company offered me more money um, I had two small kids at that time. Um, um, they offered me to come to Pittsburgh, and of course I said no, thank you, because <laughs> I was you know 20 and stupid, and I was really having a ball. I was really running this company in St. Louis. Um, was Pittsburgh tempting at all? Why'd your parents come here? Uh, my dad's company was acquired by uh, uh, Rockwell International, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, they. After years of being moved around by the military, my dad retired to the St. Louis market and got a job with a small aviation company gotcha. that got acquired by Rockwell. So they moved my parents here after being moved around by the military. And the family joke used to be, don't expect us to waste our vacations coming to visit you in Pittsburgh. <laughs> of course, we did and fell in love with Pittsburgh warts and all because Pittsburgh in the 70s was nothing like it is today. Uh, football. That's it. That's all I could think of. That's about it. That's, That's about, about it. it. But uh, one of the companies, one of the competitors here in Pittsburgh offered me a job in the mid-70s, and uh, it was more money, and uh, my parents were here. I had two small kids, so of course I said no thank you because I was you know, really enjoying my, uh, you know, my involvement with this company in St. Louis. I was just involved in a lot of different things. Is competitor still around? really appealed to me. No, it's not. Um, so a few... A couple years later, the same company said, you know, Don, we're, we have this new idea. It's called American Eagle Outfitters. Would you be interested? And at that time, I said, sign me up. So so it was a company that was launching this? Yes. The parent company was called Silverman's Menswear, and they were uh, McKee's Rocks, uh, cradle-to-grave men's store, very similar to the union clothing company I worked for in St. Louis. Right. And they, too, realized that, you know, no self-respecting teenager wanted to buy clothes and they... <laughs> You know, in the mothership, so they created a young men's specialty chain called Silverman's. So Silverman's was a competitor in the malls with the, with the Union Jack stores. And did the Silverman's themselves were they brothers? They were was brothers. It? Jerry uh, was the merchant, and Mark was the finance. And um, they Jerry came up with the idea of American Eagle, uh, brought me in and talked to me about it. I came on board with uh, with one store and uh, off to the races. So when you're leaving Union Jack. Um... Were you happy with what you'd done there, or did you feel like you could have stayed and done more? I was very happy with what I had done. We we grew that company from 1 to 13 stores, and I think, you know, all things considered, it was just time to, you know, move on to uh, bigger and better things. So coming to uh, Pittsburgh uh, in the late 70s to start up American Eagle was a great, you know, great challenge. One of the first things I did was made sure we had a, a good point-of-sale uh, inventory control system. Right. <laughs> uh, I didn't have to go out and write one myself. Right. There were a lot of good off-the-shelf programs, so I brought in a program. 
that I quickly realized it wasn't enough because it, it while it was giving me good reports on uh, open to buy and inventory management and um, sales information, everything was looking in the rearview mirror, right. and I needed to know what was going to happen, not what had. Don, happened. this is like crazy. I mean, because you're doing this in what year? This is 1970. Well, the, the well, I wrote the software in the early 70s. <laughs> uh, inventory control software for uh, Union Jack, but for American Eagle, this would have been in the early eighties. But you're doing a startup in the eighties. I mean, not that startups didn't happen in the eighties, right. but they've all proven to be successful now, right? right. Like in the eighties, if you were to ask someone's parents, "Oh, like what are your children doing?" They, they'd be like ashamed sometimes of like a startup, <laughs> right? Whereas like now, a lot of parents encourage their children to do it. So were you were your parents fully supportive? I mean, you'd proven yourself with Union Jack. Well, they they were they just, just thrilled. They were thrilled that you know the grandkids were here. <laughs> right, you know, they, right, right, right. You know, I think they were proud. Uh, yeah. but I think they're more proud that the grandkids were. <laughs> but did it hit you that you were doing, you were pursuing something like this? I, no, I just really enjoyed what I was doing. And uh, uh, as I said, I, I was really uh, paranoid over uh, lack of data. I mean, I had pretty good gut instincts, but as American Eagle grew, we were in a very fluid fashion environment. We were opening a lot of stores. And, and as we started doing more and more of our own product development, uh, the risks you know, soared, and we were placing million-dollar bets on uh, on on trends six months in advance. Hmm. You know, uh, if you're in baseball and you bat 400, you go to the Hall of Fame. If you're in retail and you bat 400, you're out of business. You know, we had to guess right six months in advance on on gender, how much men's versus women's by classification. Yeah, outerwear versus sweaters versus pants. Uh, by style, by color, by size. So there are five variables, any one of which you get wrong, bad things happen. So um, the, the stakes were becoming so high, I needed to be more predictive in what was going to happen. So I went to the owners of the company and said, you know, I'd like you to buy me a PC. And they said, what do you need a computer for? We've got this perfectly good, I think it was a System 34 at that time. Uh -huh. And uh, we had two guys in our IT department that we could go in and request a query for special information, and right. and uh, it would take them about a week to do the query, and they'd get about eighty percent of what I needed. And right. by that time, I needed ten other things. Yeah. So I uh, flew myself down yeah. to uh, uh, Austin, Texas, and a friend of mine taught PC classes down there. And after three days, I came back to Pittsburgh, semi-literate with database, word processing, and spreadsheet. And um, I developed a trend analysis, thanks to Dr. Putnam. Mm -hmm. uh, you knew, still talk to him? I knew about uh, data analytics and extrapolation. Yeah. And I figured, you know, if we know who the next president of the United States is five minutes after the polls close, I All should right. be able to figure out, you know, how many sweaters I need for American Eagle. Well, do you remember the first piece of clothing that you, uh, you ordered for the American Eagle brand? Sure. The first, uh, the, in the early days, we had very limited buying power, so we... Uh, unlike the later days where we were designing our own fabrics and things like that, we were going to companies that uh, specialized in private label, primarily for department stores, right. and they literally just put American Eagle labels on their shirts. Hmm. But we would position, uh, say, Woolrich flannels at $20 and American Eagle flannels at $15, something right. like that. And then over time, as our customers grew to appreciate the quality, you know, we sold more and more of our brand and less and less of the... The other, the other brands was uh, was the logo established before you got there? 
The logo was a uh, very interesting story. The architect had designed the store, and uh, I think Jerry and the architect, Jerry Silverman and the architect had collaborated, and the idea was very different in the market because at that time in the, in the um, late 70s, most of the young men's business was going very sophisticated, very European, mm -hmm. and American Eagle went the opposite way. It was very... Um, uh, American retro, <laughs> yeah. It was it was really designed to be like an retro. old mercantile store, tin ceiling, wooden, creaky <laughs> floors. Uh, so atmosphere was just as much of a part of it. Atmosphere very was very important, and it was very classic Americana. And uh, Jerry, when first met with Jerry, we talked about we both had read the same Wall Street Journal article about L.L. Bean had hit a fifty million dollar milestone. Right. And uh, they had one rickety store in Freeport, Maine, and the rest was done through their catalog. And so Jerry thought if they can do that much money in the catalog, you know, taking that kind of look to to the uh, malls would, uh, you know, uh, could be a really good opportunity. It's pretty genius. <laughs> so, you know, I said that's yeah. a good idea, but we need to do more. Than, you know, at that time, L.L. Bean was very boring. They're mu much less boring now, but everything was tan and navy, you know. <laughs> step out and maybe they throw, thrive a on yeah, and throw navy, burgundy yeah. in or something. So, you know, we, we injected a sense of uh, function into, uh, into the fashion, and uh, that was really the genesis of American Eagle. Jeez. So you're, you're working on this, and... It's growing, and you build it from one to two stores to three stores to four. I mean, if you were to look, I guess you have a complete sense of this. When you, from the time you got your first store to, I believe the last one you worked on was the hundred sixty fifth store, right? Something like that. We, you know, at any one time towards the end, we had several under construction. Several hundred. So yeah. where, I guess, was that something where it it just crescendoed, or was it something that happened quickly and then it slowly? you know, added on a couple more here and there. Well, interestingly, the company, uh, American Eagle did very well uh, right after its inception. We grew from one to 13 stores, and uh, we had hit, I think, over a million dollars in average unit volume pretty quickly. And we knew that, um, you know, if there was a gap or limited doing a million dollars in a given major regional mall, um, we could get a million dollars out of an American Eagle in that mall. But American Eagle uh, was doing very well, but our sister division, Silverman's, uh, really hit a downturn in the 79 recession where there were gas lines and mm -hmm. kids had to decide whether to put gas in the tank or buy their next cool shirt at Silverman's store. So they opted to buy gas they bought to take out they bought Susie gas. on Saturday night. Yeah. So the young men's part of our business uh, was really in dire straits, and so much so that the company had to reorganize. Mm. And uh, in the late 70s, Les Wexner, who was the founder of The Limited, wanted to get into the men's business. So he called an emergency board meeting to have the Limited acquire uh, Retail Ventures, which had both the Silverman stores and the, and the American Eagle stores. And at the 11th hour and 59th minute, now he didn't want to pay retail for a retail chain. He wanted right. a company to file for bankruptcy and, oh, and then pick them up and then buy it so he could cherry pick what stores he wanted to keep right. in the Silverman's uh, uh, store list. Uh, but Jerry Schottenstein got wind of the pending acquisition, mm -hmm. and there's a rivalry in Columbus between the Silvermans. And the Schottensteins. I'm sorry, the Schottensteins and the, and the Wexners. We Les Wexner borrowed $5,000 from his 
mother and created this, uh, you know, uh, empire. Uh, the Schottensteins were also successful, but their their success was based on liquidating dead companies, mm. and they were just perceived as you know uh, you know sort of bottom feeders. And but they were very successful. They had a very successful business model. They'd go in and buy distressed inventory at ten cents on the dollar and sell it for fifty cents on the dollar in their Value City or Schottenstein's department stores. So what is that like the Marshalls T J Maxx model? Exactly, exactly. But wow. they were really good at that. Made a lot of money, but. They were kind of the Rodney Dangerfields of Columbus <laughs> because Wes Wexner got all the acclaim of being this merchant prince. Right. So um, Jerry Schottenstein convinced the Silvermans to sell to him because he could get them out of their personal guarantees uh. that you know some of their assets would have been at risk had they filed for a traditional bankruptcy. And what Jerry uh, Schottenstein orchestrated was a bulk sale of assets, which is a sophisticated financial maneuver very similar to a bankruptcy right uh, but it you have to post a public sale uh, notice three days and let your creditors like a sheriff's sale well it, you have to do a public notice and if a creditor wants to know how am I going to get paid back oh, you know, okay. they can get an injunction and possibly gotcha. force an involuntary bankruptcy so wow. Jerry Schottenstein filed a notice at 4.59 the day before Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, the Silverman's vendors, who had much more at risk, um, didn't catch it. But uh, my vendors did, the American Eagle vendors. And I got a call from one of my large vendors, and I convinced him to let the bulk sale go through wow. and uh, convinced him that American Eagle would be a bigger and stronger partner. So the sale went through, and the company was restructured. And at that time, in 1980, the Schottensteins came in as 50% partners in the business. Uh, and are they still in today? The Schottensteins are still uh, one of the major shareholders of the company. They're privately or publicly traded now, but the Schottensteins are still yeah. part of the organization. So I want to dive into your role with this now sure. more. I, I think something I'm very fascinated with is the, the marketing aspect and you talk about identifying your audience. Your audience is the kids like me who didn't want to buy right. clothing from the same store my dad is. Right. Um, is that as specific as your audience got? Like, I mean, it obviously expanded throughout the years. but Well, I, I've always uh, tried to listen closely to my customers, you know, whether it was at Union Jack or the early days of American Eagle. And that was why it was really important to have good point of sale information. And one of the things I've always enjoyed about retail is it's instant gratification. You know, as soon as that new merchandise gets out, you get to see the sell-throughs and you know right. if you made good decisions or bad decisions. Yeah. So uh, uh, that was always very rewarding. But I've always tried really hard to listen to, to customers to give the customers what they want. They do have to be led a little bit based on trending and um you know, we had several indicators that we would always watch for trending, whether it be color or fabric or styling. So um, somebody once said it's, you know, running a retail company is a lot like flying a plane. You do it in slow incremental moves, nothing too radical or extreme. Now, when it comes to the branding side of it, you know, I think the idea of talking about the environment in which you buy your clothes, you know, as someone who, you know, at Apple, right? I right. mean, you go, you walk into an Apple store and it's like a detox. You've got nothing but the products there. You feel like you've walked into a laboratory, you know, uh, it's very clean cut. And I feel like that's become a standard amongst a lot of stores is creating that feeling right. and evoking that emotion. Do you think you, I, 
do you think American Eagle has done a, a remarkable job with that? Do you think it wasn't the main focus? I mean, I know you mentioned it was part of it, but uh, do you think there are other things um, you you could have done, or do you think there are things that you wish you that you did that you wish you hadn't done? Or, um, well, I think what we did in the early days um, was evolutionary. Yeah. Um, there wasn't anything really revolutionary we did. Um, we focused on giving customers what they wanted from a product standpoint. From a design standpoint, we worked really hard on controlling color palettes and making sure that everything in the men's department worked with everything else right. in the men's department from a color coordination standpoint, same in the, on the women's department. Um, I think American Eagle, compared to other companies out there today, has done a remarkable job of, of taking it to a much higher level than yeah. when, when I was there in terms of sophistication and um, design. So when you walk into a store, it doesn't have to be American Eagle. It could be any store. Right. Uh, what is the first thing you're looking at? I look at the overall you know, atmosphere and try to uh, gauge what the customer experience is all about. I mean, that's an overused term, but really does come down to customer experience. Retail is so competitive right now. You know, you know, when I was with American Eagle years ago, we would always be closing <clears throat> some of our low underperforming stores, maybe the bottom two or three percent. Today, stores, retail chains are closing, you know, huge swaths right. of stores. I mean, 30, 40 percent of their brick and mortar stores, which, you know, um, it's a very uh, tumultuous uh, environment right now. Brick and mortar retailing is not going away, but it's it's going to be a completely different um, game than than has been there in the past. What about when you're working with a customer's psyche, right? I mean, I think there's so much saturation of of advertising of different things that sometimes if I see an ad for something too much, I if there was a chance I had wanted it before, I don't want it anymore uh, right. because it's been thrown in my face so much. What do you think about the balance when you put something into market? Um, the balance of let me let the customer discover this versus let me present this to the customer so they don't miss out on it. Well, that's a good. It's uh, a good question. Um, customers today, there's so much noise out there. Right. They put uh, up a filter. Put up a filter. Uh, there's a lot less brand loyalty today, particularly amongst uh, millennials, and that's mm. a that's a challenge to a lot of uh, retailers today. So, you really do have to give the customer. Um, an experience that uh, is exceptional, exec exceptional compared to their competitors. And uh, I've always been a big believer in what I call the above and beyond factor. I think there's so many choices we have to uh, purchase things that more and more purchasing decisions are made not just about the product or, or service, but also about the company's values that are selling you that product or service. You know, if I like Apple as an example and what they've stood for in terms of innovation, I'm gonna I want to reward that creativity. Interesting. Uh, rather than I need another phone. Right. Um, right. Uh, in the early days of American Eagle, we lobbied very hard to uh, carry Patagonia in our stores. Uh, interestingly, we had to finance our own purchases because <laughs> our buying power we were buying more than Patagonia was putting in their line. So. Right. Uh, but their brand and what they stood for was really important to me to have have that uh, uh, become one of our, our uh, kind of foundational brands in the early days because it gave us right. some credibility with, with true outdoor yeah. consumers. Well, with the companies that have that brand loyalty, uh, and I think you're right, I think it is a few. You know, you have your Nikes, you have 
I think you're American Eagles, um, but I think the thing about American Eagle that's interesting is, you know, I might grow out of American Eagle, but at the same time, someone's growing into it. Um, so it's very much like, I mean, right. you know, it's a, an age group um, to a degree, um, although it's expanded. But I, I guess I look at stores that have those brand loyalty, and you think, okay, this is this isn't even about the product anymore. This is about the customer experience. This is about right. basically teaching your employees human interaction over the details of the products they're selling, um, which I think is a huge benefit. I, it's almost an accomplishment. Uh, it, I mean, it is an accomplishment, but it's it's this this peak of a of retail that you're now at this point you're just trying to maintain. I mean, you you want to continue to develop stuff and stay with the times, but I think it's interesting how your goals um, change as a company once you hurt, hit certain milestones. Um, do you set those milestones for yourself, or do you set them for your company? You know, like when you're building a brand, are you are you setting those company wide, or are you saying to yourself, all right, like I want to make sure that you know, we're doing. I don't know. I guess I wonder mini well, goals the, the versus brand, the brand building. Goals. And I I love branding because it's uh, as I like to say, it's the magic of uh, of retail. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of technology companies out there that have really phenomenal technology, but branding is really just all pixie dust and and uh, <laughs> and uh, and wishes. And it, it's really about creating a brand, um, you know, with clear, concise messaging and consistency over time. I mean, that's how you build a brand because the examples, and I, I give a lot of talks uh, about branding to different uh, schools, uh, but some of the examples I cite are, you know, companies like Google. You know, what, what's a Google? You know, only the math nerds know it's a really big number. Right. Uh, but everybody knows, oh, it's a it's a great search engine, um, only because they've spent the last uh, couple decades teaching us about right. what Google really is. Uh, Amazon, it's a river in South America. Oh, it's a delivery service. That <laughs> See, that's can... funny because I know about the Amazon River, and it's still, <laughs> I think, of the Amazon yeah, website so before. There's, there's a lot of brands that have just done a really great job of, of uh, you know, Uber. What's an Uber? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's a rideshare. No, it's a German word for, you know, super-duper. Right. Uh, but everybody knows exactly what Uber is uh, from their branding and messaging. So... Retailing is a little bit uh, more challenging. You know, in the early days of American Eagle, we didn't have the buying power to to design our brand. Uh, but I had a sense of where I wanted to take the company. And over time, as we got more and more volume, we just plugged in more and more of the product development things that we could do as we grew into them. But it was right. a you know process that took ten years, uh, an overnight success. Right. Uh, do you think social media has been more beneficial or detrimental to the idea of branding for retail? Um, I think it's mixed. I think it really um, can be used as a force for good, but I think if it's not done well, you can turn off a lot of your customers. Because I notice a lot of companies will almost use social media ironically. Um, like ones that, are, I mean, some of the biggest stars, Jay-Z and Beyonce, don't tweet at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you see companies that will have a presence just so they don't look like they're not aware of it, right. but they won't maintain right. it uh, in a consistent basis um, simply because maybe they're trying to maintain this, you know, better than mentality. Right. I don't know. It's really fascinating to me, and I think it's a great way to push coupons and well, push promotions. Well, my mother but... used to have a great saying. She said, if you're going to do something, do it right or don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of companies are doing it because they think they need to do it, but they're not necessarily doing it well. So, you know, it really comes down to are you giving your customer a relevant 
experience by doing this. But don't you, you look just... naive if you don't have like uh, any sort of a social media presence? Well, I think that if you don't, you probably won't be around because you have to engage your customers uh, where they live, and they live on their devices. They don't live watching broadcast TV or listening to FM radio as they did in you know in my misspent youth. Uh, hmm. They they uh, are getting their content from a whole new source, which creates you know great opportunities and great disruption at the same time. <laughs> and I like disruption. Yeah, yeah. What uh what are some of the um what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen startups make? Probably one of the biggest mistakes startups uh, make is really not doing enough customer discovery. Um, you know, there's a solution that comes up, and the solution goes out looking for a problem rather than really understanding a pain point in the market, saying, "Hey, there's a better way to do this." And uh, I think that's probably the, the the biggest single mistake is the lack of uh, uh, sufficient customer discovery. And the best way to do that customer discovery is. Is surveys? It's standing ask. in the. It's just asking. Ask. Oftentimes, people that have uh, worked in an industry will will know firsthand different pain points. Hmm. Why do we do things like this? I think there's a better way to do it, and they go out and start their own company right. to solve a problem they're very familiar with. Those are usually the kind of companies that succeed. Uh, it's knowing of, the form and being able to break it. Knowing the industry, knowing the the pain point uh, from pers firsthand experience. Right. I mean, I developed uh, inventory control from firsthand experience. I was freaking out, <laughs> uh, you know, placing all these, uh, you know, uh, inventory uh, bets uh, without sufficient data. Right. So uh, I was, you know, data driven. A lot of it was gut, but still, you need the data to to make better decisions. So customer discovery is something you see not enough startups doing. Uh, what's what are some of the best things you've seen some startups doing recently? Well, there's a, a lot of interesting things uh, going on. Uh, Pittsburgh is just, uh, uh, and Pennsylvania in general, is just doing some remarkable things. I'm working with one company that uh, has a leather product made out of re recycled leather. Mm -hmm. Uh, it does everything that top grain cowhide will do. Uh, it's about 40 to 60 percent the cost, and uh, it's got a great sustainability story. Um, uh, there's just tremendous uh, innovations in the medical field with uh, uh, immunotherapy. Um, one of the portfolio companies for Blue Tree is a company that has a small molecule drug that might uh, have a huge impact on the Alzheimer's market. Um, yeah, there's so many themes with these. You know, the, you're talking about trends. There are terms in the innovation startup field that you'll see, and you're like, okay, well, this this is going to be just as successful because I saw a, you know a startup just do this, but maybe five later, it's not going to work. Um, you know, you talk about how it might be philanthropic or mm -hmm. um, it might be forty to sixty percent. I mean, cost will always play into it, but I, I right. think it's interesting how like you know recycled use and these different. Uh, phrases I, I just think of like cage free eggs you know like yes right. like yeah. well thread is another good example yeah. of a local company that's making fabric out of uh you know recycled plastic bottles from haiti you know it's nothing new patagonia's been right. doing it for quite a while but they've they've figured out a uh, an effective way to market that right again getting back to that above and beyond factor yeah uh, so people are relating to you know purchasing products made with thread fabric hmm. Wow, it's it's really neat. Um, so I you're 
you're helping all these startups. I mean, you you don't need to do anything anymore. I, you know, like technically you don't, right? I mean, you you you've pretty much set yourself up to uh, to be good for the rest of your life, but you're you're still involved with this. Um, I guess my first question is why, and then I'll ask you why you're here. Why? Well, a um, couple reasons. I like to say I have the best job in Pittsburgh. Because <laughs> literally every day I'm meeting entrepreneurs, and I just uh, love entrepreneurship. And uh, in my early career, I was very fortunate to have had some really phenomenal mentors who took me under their wing. And and uh, Dr. Putnam, uh, Dr. Putnam was one. Uh, my first boss at Union Clothing Company. I knew nothing about retail, but he taught me uh, taught me about retail. So. You know, I love entrepreneurs as number one. I have the best job in Pittsburgh. I, I, I love helping entrepreneurs as a way to, you know, pay it forward uh, from, from the great mentoring uh, uh, that I had. And specifically why I'm here, it's uh, Babs Carrier uh, asked me to come on campus one day a week as an entrepreneur in residence. And um, she has the same passion for our entrepreneurship and startups that I have. And so we're kindred spirits, so I'm, I'm here because of Babs. Is Pittsburgh going to keep doing this? Is this only going to stay growing here, or is it going to kind of hit a peak? In Pittsburgh, the... I've been yeah. involved for the last five or six years in the startup community, and every year there's new uh, building blocks being added to the uh, ecosystem, and I think it's really well positioned for, you know, for decades to come. Pittsburgh is, I just love Pittsburgh. It has such a rich, you know, history with, uh, with you know, Andrew Carnegie's legacy of steel and Frick and many others. And, uh, you know, this, is, this, is, this was the Silicon Valley uh, 100 years ago. We made stuff here. And I think that uh, that legacy is still here. Uh, we're not going to be making steel like we used to. Uh, but we're going to be making different things. It might be uh, new alloys. It might be carbon fiber products. Uh, but I think there's a great, rich manufacturing heritage here. And I think, you know, in addition to the manufacturing heritage, it's an, it's a heritage of innovation. I mean, if you go back and look at Carnegie and and Frick and all the all the other entrepreneurs at that time, uh, they were inventing and making all kinds of technological. Right. inroads and process improvement on whatever industry they were in. So I think there's a really uh, strong undercurrent of innovation in this area. And I, I think Pittsburgh is well positioned for decades to come. Uh, I know you have to go. So last question for you. Uh, for kids who are really afraid of this stuff, you know, I think for people like Sean and myself, we find startup culture incredible. Uh, and we think the idea of starting something from scratch and watching it grow is almost more exciting than just being at the top and watching it. Um, how, what do you say to the kids who are afraid of that, who don't see it as something they feel like they could ever do? Well, entrepreneurship is not for everyone. Um, one of the things, though, that, that's preached in the, in the startup culture is, you know, it's okay to fail. Uh, you learn from your mistakes. Uh, we also try to, you know, fail early, uh, <laughs> fail early and often, learn from your mistakes and uh, move on from there. So, uh, some people, you know, are not comfortable with failure, but uh, if you can, you know, get over that, um, I think you'll be uh, better positioned to to move forward. I think getting back to my, you know, uh, my checkered past of moving, uh, you know, going to eight schools before high school, I think that probably conditioned me to 
be um, uh, not afraid to take chances. Yeah. Do you think you marketed your uh, your band well enough in, in high school <laughs> to make it big? Well, I'm very proud of how far we got. Uh, we Our goal was to get a recording uh, contract, uh, and we actually had uh, two audition offers that came through in the same week. Uh, you made it. One from Columbia and one from Buddha. Unfortunately, the week before, half our band got drafted. <laughs> 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 These are the problems of the of the sixties and seventies, yes. right? So, but we had a sense of accomplishment. Uh, we just weren't able to quite realize it. Absolutely, Don. Thank you so much for coming. Sure, on. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Bending Steel is brought to you by the Innovation Institute at the University of Pittsburgh and is produced by Sean O'Brien and me, Jesse Irwin. For more episodes or info, you can find the Innovation Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or at innovation.pit.edu.